You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the podcast where I'm talking about Bitcoin. Today's guest is Mr. Mike Alfred, who's an entrepreneur of multiple successful businesses over the past two decades. His recent company was sold to Ross Stevenson's multi-billion dollar New York Digital Investment Group, or NYDIG, for an undisclosed amount. On today's show, Mike and I cover a range of topics, but what I think people might enjoy most is Mike's analysis on the valuation of publicly traded Bitcoin mining companies. So without further delay, here's my chat with Mike Alfred. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. So like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Mike Alfred. Mike, what a pleasure to have you on the show. I've participated in like, well, I don't know if it would be, if I would call it clubhouse, but spaces on Twitter a few times with you. And you're just a total wealth of knowledge. I'm excited to get into some of these topics because like myself, you come with this value background. You have been an investor for multiple decades and have started two very successful businesses and sold two very successful businesses. And welcome to the show. Awesome to have you here. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been, been fun interacting with you, just bits and pieces here and there. And I remember you know, Lynn Alden would come on to some of my spaces and then all of a sudden I would see you on there as well. And I feel like we're all just watching the people that we like to listen to show up in these spaces and then we magically show up in the room too. <laughs> it's kind of opt-in and, and just kind of magical who shows up. So I've been enjoying the, the serendipity of it all. It is fun. We were talking, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, but you and I were talking valuations and just kind of uh, owning equity in this Bitcoin space. But before we go there, let's just give the uh, listener a little bit of a background on you because you just right out of the gate, right out of college, you went to Stanford. While you were there, you started your own business. Talk to us about this, this startup process and like how it all unfolded. So I didn't really start my first business until after I graduated. From Stanford, but I did get into trading stocks yeah, yeah. Uh, in the late '90s, right, with my own capital. So I, I did Cutco knives. You know, I sold the, the Cutco knife. You cut the penny with the uh, yes. with the scissors, and you do the presentation in people's houses, and you ask for referrals. People always say, "Isn't that door to door sales?" I'm like, "No, there's a big difference between door to door sales and referral based sales, where you're asking Mrs. Jones to refer you to ten of her best friends, right?" And so I learned the value of always asking for the next intro, the next meeting. Which has been super helpful over the last twenty years in all different types of business contexts. But the most important thing about that was I made fourteen thousand dollars in seven weeks. And my mom wanted me to go work at the fairground, shilling cinnamon rolls to people walking by, and you know, working the the fair rides and all that. I said, no way, got to do something more interesting. So I'm seventeen years old. I got fourteen k, and I'm like, well, what should I do with this? A lot of my friends were buying, you know, laptops and cell phones and cars and stuff. And I opened an E Trade account and I just started trading stocks. And I started with like more of a conservative, like, hey, I want to own Vanguard funds, whatever. And then I woke up one day in my Stanford dorm room this freshman year, it's like 1999. And I'm like, no, I want to actually learn how to invest in companies. I actually want to know what these companies do. I actually want to understand them from a first principle standpoint. I want to understand how accounting works. I want to understand how you build things. And you just can't do that as an index investor. So like, no offense to the 95% of people that Warren Buffett says should be an index investor. But for me, that was absolutely the wrong path because it would mean that I would have to basically stick my head in the ground and be an ostrich about the business building process right? and investing in real companies. right? And so I started trading stocks and I started trading everything. I traded penny stocks. I traded tech stocks. I made a lot of money. I lost a lot of money. 
but more importantly than anything, it sort of imbued in me the sense that like I should be an investor, and that's something I should do for fifty or seventy years from from that point going forward. That said, you know, when I graduated, I had to make some money, so I did start multiple businesses. I was briefly a financial advisor. I managed money for wealthy people. I started a company called Brightscope, which I raised about five point four million dollars for. I sold it for about thirty. In 2016, that was a, a ratings business for 401k plans. So, so Preston, you know Morningstar. I was inspired by Morningstar, and I said, "Why isn't there a rating system for every 401k in America?" You know, if you work at a- Amgen or Google or Microsoft in, in 2008, there was no way to find out how good your 401k plan it was. Like, I can solve this. So, I raised a million bucks from investors. I hopped on a plane. I went to Washington D.C. and I got them to release previously unreleased so-called public data, but actually we needed to FOIA Center Freedom of Information Act request to the government more than 100 times, I think, to get all the data we needed to build our rating. And so we launched that in 2009. Almost instantly, it was a success in the sense that like CNN and CNBC wanted to talk about who has the best 401k plan in America. And T. Rowe Price and Fidelity wanted to buy the data. And financial advisors wanted to know how they could prospect plans. And so we got it up to about $10 million in revenue in 2016 when I you know, took it to market and, and sold it. Shortly after that, these guys from Distributed Global... I don't know if you've heard about these guys yet, but this is a hedge fund. Crypto hedge fund. My brother is one of the three partners. Started with about sixty million. I think today it's well over a billion. And they were recognizing early on in 2017, late 2017, that there were all these new crypto hedge funds: Pantera and Polychain and right, Multicoin and Paradigm, and all these folks were coming to the market. And there was no institutional grade data. So I said, "Hey, Mike, we saw what you did at Brightscope building a data business. Why don't you come build a Bloomberg for the crypto space?" And so I set out doing that, and I ended up raising about ten million for that company. Hired over 30 people at one point at the peak. Signed a bunch of the biggest firms in crypto. I had some of the biggest investors in crypto, but ultimately, you know, wasn't a huge success. I think the market was just a little bit too early, and so I was able to engineer an exit to Nidig last November. And I actually worked for Nidig for about eight months, uh, doing strategy and M&A. So that's kind of the, the high-level timeline, Preston. But I'm sure you want to potentially go another direction with it. I don't know if you noticed the smirk and the and the grin on my face when you were talking about your time in college and just kind of the valuation process because like you I just wasn't satisfied with buying like a mutual fund or an index I was just like well there's these other people out here that are able to buy individual companies and do it in a way that they outperform the market significantly and it seems like you had the exact same opinion so for me I just started studying Buffett I'm curious like your approach was to kind of crack to crack that nut of like, how do I outperform the market by buying individual companies? So early on, what, what were you doing? I'm very tactile, right? I'm a very like, I had to have to do things in order to learn, right? Like, that's how I learned guitar. I had a few teachers, but I quickly would outgrow them. And the same thing happened in markets. I would just trade, I would buy stocks and then read for 10 hours a day about the companies, right? And then move on to the next industry. I mean, I've, I've cycled through pretty much every industry. I've made money in energy. I've made money in internet stocks. I've made money in biotech. I've made money in traditional technology. Right now, I'm really long consumer staples, grocery stocks, like a value guy. So I tend to tilt towards spaces that everybody hates that I assume will come back, like healthcare and grocery stores, which are sort of inevitable. Like people are not going to stop needing healthcare. It's one of the best demographic bets of the next 50 years. And so if you're, if you're fishing in that space with low multiple stocks, you probably do okay over 10 years, right? And so a lot of it's just, I went in and I did it, right? I read a lot of, I discovered the SEC website and I realized all the documents were on there. I could read through 10 Qs and I could read through all kinds of updates. I could read the, the 
the uh, quarterly conference call notes, right? I was following the Raging Bull message boards. I mean, today we have Reddit, but back then it was Raging Bull. And I've actually since befriended the founder of Raging Bull. He's got, he had a hedge fund for a while that did really well. And he's also an advisor to a, another hedge fund that I'm an advisor to. And so that was it. That was the source of information. It was like, I don't know if you remember this, Preston, but real-time quotes in 1999, 2000, it was something you paid for. Right. So if you were trading stocks in the late 90s, something we take for granted today that like everything's real time, it was 20 minutes delayed. Right. And when you when you wanted to trade on e-trade, it was 1999 each direction. So you had to make 40 bucks on a trade in order to make money, right? Because you were going to spend 1999 on the entry and 1999 on the exit. So so many things have, have changed since then, but fundamentally the game is still the same. Like find the most undervalued companies that you have an edge and understanding over anyone else in the world, buy them in a reasonable size that doesn't jeopardize your whole portfolio and then hold them long enough to generate that excess alpha. And I've been doing it for 20 years and it surprises me that the opportunity still exists because with all these high frequency traders and all the, the liquidity that's active in the market today relative to like the, the 99, 2000 tech bubble, it's just a totally different game. It's just a harder game if you're trying to play short-term games. But if you're trying to play long-term games, I think it's actually never been a better time to be an individual company investor yeah. or value investor because the alpha comes back when everybody decides there's no alpha in doing that. What attracted you to this? Because I think people that would be hearing this from the outside, they'd be like, oh, Mike just wants to make a lot of money. But I don't think that that's what it is. You often find people that, that like love this stuff, that are pouring through a, a 10K or a 10Q. They like the complexity. They're just kind of wired in a certain way that, that they're trying to piece together a puzzle. So like, how would you describe it? Why were you attracted to this kind of stuff? I think the main thing I, I realized as I was working as an investor, as a young investor, right, in training in a sense, is that I had entered the most interesting intellectual game that exists. Yes. Anywhere, anywhere. It's multi level, it's multi dimensional, it's constantly evolving. It's like the ocean. It's like the difference between surfing and snowboarding, right? Like the conditions change in snowboarding. So it's kind of interesting, right? Like sometimes there's more powder, sometimes there's less powder, whatever. But in, in surfing, the entire ocean is moving all the time. Right, literally, the wave you're riding didn't exist in that space before five minutes before you rode that wave. And investing is the same way. Like everything you think is cyclical, there are cycles in markets, but there are also things that you've never seen before. There are things like the mobile phone. There are things like the internet. There are things like Bitcoin that are basically impossible to model. And once I realized it was a game with no bounds, right? Like poker is a solvable game now. No limit hold'em has been solved by machines, more or less. Like it's very hard even for the best players in the world to beat a, a game theory optimized uh, robot. Chess was obviously solved years ago. Go is more recently sort of being solved by, by Google, right? And so all of these games, they're finite. There's a limit to how many different variations. It might be more than all the atoms in the universe, but there's still at least some sort of real limit. And investing, it felt like the most limitless intellectual game that I could possibly play. As I, as I dug into it more and more, I said, this is something I could spend 50 or 75 years on. And I, I just haven't seen anything else in life that looks like that. I have the exact same passion and just intellectual curiosity. That's why I've been in the space for all these years. I just find it so exciting to try to understand and kind of piece together the complexity. But the way you just described it helped me understand in a way that I'd never thought of it like that. I, I loved how you just described that. So, Mike, let's talk a little bit about your first business. So, you're trying to do this data analytics, you're standing it up. Talk to us about like some of the trials and tribulations, things that you learned that you just have no clue until you start your own company. Like if you're going back and kind of reassessing yourself, what would you tell yourself right now if you could go back in time? 
Press, there's so many things on the micro level, but at the macro level, like the very, very top end for an entrepreneur starting a business today, the guys at Sequoia, some of the partners there, like Brian Schreier and, and Alfred Lin, who I've spent a little bit of time with, they told me this years ago and it didn't make sense at the time. Because when you're in a young entrepreneur and your nose is just in your own business, you don't want to hear those big picture ideas because maybe it conflicts with what you're actually trying to do. But they said, look, here at Sequoia, what we focus on first and foremost is the team, of course. But secondly, it's just the market and the, and the size of that market. Because if you start a business, even as the best business in the world, but you start in a small market, it's going to be a small business. If you start even a mediocre business in a huge and growing market, it has the potential to be a very large business. You don't even have to be that smart. I, I can think of a few companies in crypto that would qualify for that second one. And so early on, I wish somebody had taken me aside at 22 years old and said, Hey, you could save a lot of time by just waiting until you see a fat pitch in a market that actually justifies spending 10 years of your life on it. Because I spent eight and a half years on Brightscope. I think we changed the 401k industry forever. We lowered fees. We worked directly with Obama's CTO. We, went, I did, we wrote reports for the GAO. We worked with the Senate Aging Committee. We worked with the House Educational Labor Committee. I was close with executives across most of the largest financial services companies in the US. Right? There were a lot of really interesting impacts personally and professionally from building the company. But ultimately, it was a $30 million outcome. And with the same amount of effort, I've seen $300 million companies and $3 billion companies with the same amount of effort and no sort of dramatic differences in management quality, execution capabilities, capital raise, et cetera. Right? Like I'm noticing now, it's just as easy to raise a $30 million Series A as it is to raise a five or even a $2 right, million round. And, and as, you, as you dig deeper into these businesses, you, you realize a lot of it's just market. And you're fundamentally, you're riding these tailwinds. So why I'm so excited about investing in Bitcoin and, and crypto business in particular is that I think you have a hundred X plus tailwind. As a lot of great value investors like to say, right? Like you could take a, a great management team. You know, you're going to find out that the uh, management's uh, reputation doesn't survive the experience, right? And and in the same way, you could flip that around and say, look, you could take an idiot, put them in a crypto business, and they might look like a genius. And so at the very macro level, I could talk about a lot of like very detailed things from being a CEO for ten years and now sitting on boards for another five or ten years uh, of experience, kind of on top of that. But none of them are going to be as important as just choosing the right market. I love that. So tell us your Bitcoin story. When did it first come onto the radar for you? Uh, what time frame are we, are we talking? And then how did you act as, as this entered the marketplace or your, your stream of thoughts and your ideas as you're looking at it? Yeah. So I've said this before a couple of times and you know, I still regret it to some degree, but I, I wish I had more of a beginner's mindset. With Bitcoin, I used historical analogies from markets rather than starting from the, hey, understand Bitcoin in context of other monies, which I think is the correct way to get to a real understanding of Bitcoin. So 2012, 2011, I'm reading an article, one of the magazine articles talking about Bitcoin going from 5 bucks to 20 bucks or 20 bucks to 100 bucks. And I see it and right away, I think dot-com bubble, right? Because you know, those of us who lived through the dot-com bubble investing our own money still have scars. Uh, around what happens at the end of a bubble, right? I actually think it'd be something good for most of these Robinhood pajama traders today to go through is one cycle, one full cycle, just one. The Fed probably won't even allow it, right? Most of the traders that are in Robinhood today obviously have never lived through a, a single cycle, right? Because they came onto the market in the last decade and we really haven't had a full business cycle. But having lived through that, what I saw Bitcoin initially and I saw how bubbly and frothy it traded, it looked a lot like the stocks I traded in my Stanford dorm room in 1990. And so I made a mistake. I made a, a, a logical mistake. I made an intellectual mistake in writing it off. And so I called the top at Thanksgiving dinner. I think it was 2013 or 2014. There was that thousand dollar top. And I said, "This is nuts. Like this is going to collapse. It's a bit of a bubble, right?" So 
Short term, I was right. Long term, completely wrong. Because I didn't even know what I was talking about. I was talking about a ticker. I was talking about a thing that was trading like things that I had seen before that blew up rather than asking, huh, what is this thing that went from basically no market price to $1,000 right, in three or four years? That was the more interesting intellectual conversation. The other thing that caused me to make that mistake, though, is that the people who were recommending Bitcoin to me at that time were all venture capitalists. And I had a personal disdain for some of these people because, frankly, <laughs> some of them are, are personally obnoxious. And I found their behavior obnoxious, you know, showing 25 minutes late for meetings, right? telling you they're going to have a partner meeting and then disappearing for three weeks, dicking you around as an entrepreneur. Like, so some of the people that I personally disliked were also uh, big fans of Bitcoin. And again, another mistake. It's, I'm actually getting better at this as I age it. More and more, I pay more attention now when somebody I personally dislike likes an asset. I tend to actually do more work on it because I found when somebody really distasteful to me likes something, almost always that's a good investment. And so my story is that I waited until 2017 to actually do the work. Right. So it's spring of 2017, I finally started reading. Finally, said, okay, I'm actually going to understand what this is, and I started buying Bitcoin. That was the beginning of a process. What really got me to where I am today was working in the space, working with crypto hedge funds, working with Bitcoiners, looking at the data. Helping hedge funds understand the data, right? That really gave me a, a better fundamental understanding of what was going on. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep with Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So your comment there, I love it that you actually dig in deeper when somebody that you don't particularly like, maybe on a personal level, is recommending something or you know that they're buying it. Do you think that this is because you're just running in circles with people that kind of have a little bit of a Midas touch to things. And if they're just continuing to crush it time and time again, that you might 
look at them because of whatever ego they might have as, as a personal level of why you dislike them, but at the same time, you intellectually have respect for their ability to, to be right through the years. Is that what's going on? Or? There's a few things. One is that the smartest people in the world are often not the most fun people in the world. And, and often, in my experience, sponsors in the world are both difficult and stubborn. And so they're going to be the people that when you're having dinner with them, and you want them to just let something go because maybe you made a misstatement or, or, or maybe they're calling you out on something you did five years ago. They'll just won't let it go. They're tenacious, right? They're going to beat yeah. you up. They're going to punch you in the face intellectually. They're going to tell you you're wrong. They're not going to let you off the hook and they're not going to change the subject until they're done. And so that can be painful, right? Now, if you're intellectually honest and you recognize you made a mistake, then, then maybe you can use it as an opportunity for growth, right? But, but in general, like some of these world-class investors are just not... They're not going to be your best friend. They're not the person necessarily you want to have a beer with every Friday night. But if you get the opportunity to sit down with people like this, uh, it can change your life because you will be exposed to ideas that 99.99% of society haven't even heard about yet. In 2012, 2013, that was Bitcoin. Anybody talking about Bitcoin with real conviction at that time was somebody that was thinking deeply. Generally, they're going to have a contrarian bent. Often these times are, are surly, you know, aggressive, sometimes nasty, even people. But ultimately, they're right. And being right and being right big requires that kind of stubbornness, requires you not to care so much what other people think. Talk to us about just how you think about a portfolio, specifically today in 2021, portfolio construction. How much equity you're thinking relative to just owning Bitcoin itself? Talk to us about your ideas on this. Obviously, they've evolved quite a bit over the last three, four years. I spent a lot of time with Rick Edelman, who's one of the kind of top financial advisors in the world, right? He, he put together Edelman Financial Engines. It's a publicly traded, I don't know, six, seven billion dollar company. He just exited. He was very wealthy, very successful guy. Had a radio show for 30, 40 years. He was like the original well marketed financial advisor in the public guy. And he, when we talked about this in 2018, it was like, oh, maybe one to 5%, right? For the average person who's 60 or seven years old, they're retired, they can't afford to have an 80% drawdown on 100% of their portfolio. I think that's evolved a bit. I'm now up to 20% for retired people. I think 20% of a portfolio should be in Bitcoin. Like when you run the numbers and you, you really backtest the numbers with, with other assets included, right? You're not going to have a significant change or at least a like, a significant enough change to kind of ruin someone's portfolio uh, with 20% Bitcoin. Uh, for me personally, like I've gone much higher, but a lot of that's just because I don't rebalance. So, so my view today is you should buy the amount of Bitcoin that you think you can buy and hold for 10 years, whatever that amount is, and then simply don't rebalance it. So if it becomes 80% of your portfolio because it outperforms everything, so be it. But I think rebalancing is sort of counterproductive in Bitcoin because you, if Bitcoin's right, it's a 100x or a 300x. If it's a wrong, it's a zero. It's a rebalancing is just underexposing you to the thing that's likely to perform the best. So I'm actually going to probably put together a fund next year, right? And it's going to be basically a reflection of my own personal philosophy uh, on investing. So it'll be an ultra long duration vehicle. Initially, it'll start with just five or $10 million of my own money, right? So I'm not going to take any uh, outside LPs, at least initially, although I have a couple of sort of soft commitments to put in 20 or $30 million. The way I'm thinking about portfolio construction for my fund, which I'm calling Alpine Fox, I can talk about what Alpine Fox means to me, but it's, it's going to be a forever, long duration, 30, 40, 50 year type of fund. Initially, I imagine about a third of the, of the portfolio will be in just pure Bitcoin, spot Bitcoin, probably cold storage, never to be touched, just sitting there riding for 20, 30 years. About a third will be in small cap activism, 
So I've done a little bit of small cap activism over the last couple of years, partnering with a hedge fund out of New York called Outer Bridge Capital. I work very closely with the partner, Rory Wallace, there. We did a campaign last summer at Barnes & Noble Education. That's a New York Stock Exchange listed company. The ticker is BNET. We were buying the stock at $1.50. We proposed four new board members. We got up to about 13.5% of the stock. The stock was very cheap last year, partially due to COVID. I was on the four-member board slate. So I was one of the four board members we proposed. We ultimately settled for two, took two board seats. I think the stock today is at like $10.30, something like a 7-8x in a year. We just announced today, we proposed three new board members for a company called ComTech, which is a publicly traded uh, NASDAQ-listed company. So somewhere in that kind of $100 million to $1 billion range is where I think small cap activism can have the most impact because Dan Loeb and Paul Singer and those guys are not there. But guys like Rory and I, Rory's about three years younger than me. He's also a Stanford history major. Uh, his wife was a Stanford uh, freshman roommates with my sister. Right, So there's a lot of family connections there now. And so we just have built trust and we love to do these activist campaigns. So I want to have my own dedicated vehicle where I can do these uh, small cap activist stuff. This is very idios- idiosyncratic investing. It's one company at a time. It's understanding that company's exact story, like who the management is, where the opportunities are, the levers to pull to, to create value. So you pair this sort of idiosyncratic small cap investing style with Bitcoin. And then the third component will be classic traditional value. And so that'll be things like the grocery stores and the, the Bristol Myers squibs that you know, Lynn Alden and I have been talking a lot about over the last six months. Things that are low multiple, good businesses, but misunderstood or, or sort of undervalued at the time. And I think when you pair those three return strings together in one vehicle, you'll get uh, some performance and risk characteristics like you've never seen in a single fund before. So Mike, take us back to in 2017 when you when it clicked for you with Bitcoin. What was the thing that kind of put you over the over the top and, and it just like the light bulb went off? I think it was really it's along the lines of like what is in the Bitcoin standard, right? So when you think about like what is the best money and how has money worked historically? When I really I'm a historian, right? I was a Stanford history major. So I always think in the historical context and when I think back at all the monies in human history and the fact that you know, fiat currencies have only really been a thing for 50 years, right? And even though I, you know, I'm 40 years old, so like 10 years before I was born, fiat currencies were really sort of becoming a big thing and going off the gold standard. It, it just dawned on me that like my entire paradigm for the future was probably wrong, right? Because it was based on like a very, very short time period in the past. But when you actually just build up from what makes good money, Bitcoin is clearly the best money in human history, period. Like I think that's very clear once you've done the work. But maybe more importantly, from the investor standpoint, for me, was that I think Bitcoin is maybe one of the best investments in human history. And I tend to agree with the like hardcore toxic maximalists who say stuff like, you know, Bitcoin's the best savings technology. It's not an investment. So, so yeah, Pierre Rochard, if you're, if you're listening, like, you know, I agree with you, buddy. But like, but in terms of like my background and what I'm doing as an investor, I also think it's probably the best investment opportunity in history because I think Bitcoin has the biggest TAM in human history. I think it has the biggest total addressable market of any asset, any Ever. company, and maybe any idea in human history. And I'm comparing it with other ideas, other companies, right, other religions. So I would even compare it to things like capitalism and democracy and religions. But I think Bitcoin is unique amongst those things because it really has no competition, right? Like if you're Buddhist, you're probably not going to be Mormon. You're probably not going to be Muslim. You're probably not going to be Christian. There's always an alternative. If once you understand Bitcoin at scale, like there really is no alternative as base money, right? And so I think Bitcoin has an uninterrupted path to significantly higher values. Whether you want to reflect that in traditional, you know, existing fiat currencies, or you want to reflect it in terms of real world assets, or however you want to express that, I think Bitcoin's path 
is so clear in terms of becoming the most widely used money in the world that from an investment use case and an investment standpoint, it's probably one of the best value investments in history. So it has this weird paradox where once you deeply understand it, right, you want to put all your money into it. But from an investor standpoint, you know, you also recognize that like in order for Bitcoin to succeed, it also is going to need other pieces of the stack to work, right? It's going to need infrastructure. It's going to need ways to exchange. It's going to need ways to transfer it. It's going to need Bitcoin mining capex to support the hash rate, which is going to allow it to scale over time, right? So a lot of people like to just imagine Bitcoin's price going up in the metaverse infinitely with no constraints. And that's a wonderful uh, vision. But the reality is a lot of infrastructure has to be built in order for us to see those prices. I think Bitcoin incentivizes in a sort of an organic way all those things to happen in such a way that because it's decentralized and because nobody can stop it and nobody can turn it off, that it, it sort of invariably you get something like a 30 to 100% CAGR over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And I think you get that with a much lower risk than you get with a company. So like I'm thinking of companies like Amazon, right? That if you held over the last two decades, you would get similar CAGR, right? If, if you think about companies like Tesla over the last 10 years, the problem with Amazon and, and Tesla was there's so many things that could have gone wrong. Tesla could have blown up so many times, whether through fraudulent accounting or fraudulent tweets about funding secured, or just the behavior of the senior executive team or mismanagement or failed execution or too many stock options. Bitcoin can't fail like that because so much of what's going to happen with Bitcoin is programmatic. It's algorithmic. It's sort of predetermined. And so what a great investment if I can get an Amazon type return string over 20 years without all of the company-specific risk that you get with an individual equity. So for me, Bitcoin's one of the greatest investments in history. I'm pretty confident if you just buy and hold it over the next 20 years, you're going to beat almost any equity investor straight up. Is that risk reducing over time? As that market cap of Bitcoin goes higher and higher, the risk is going down. Is that a linear reduction of risk or is that a like a parabolic type reduction in risk that's taking place, like a nonlinear reduction? I think it depends on what dimension you're thinking about. In terms of the network adoption, I think it's exponential. It's parabolic because money becomes more valuable the more people that used it. Right. I like to talk about the telephone. Like imagine imagine you could buy ATT stock a hundred years ago, or imagine you could buy a, a telephone token that represents the adoption of the telephone. And then imagine somebody came to you when there were only two telephones in existence and said, hey, Preston, I want to sell you a telephone token for 0.00000001 cent. I want to sell you 0001 of these things. Yeah, sure. Right? Sure. And, and, and you're like, okay, I don't really know what that means. But then, but then four of your friends get telephones. And all of a sudden you wake up, now the price is a dollar. But now four of your friends have telephones and they start trying to call you on that phone. Now you recognize the value. And of course, when everybody has a telephone, it becomes indispensable. And that's how I view Bitcoin. So I think along that vector of like user adoption and like the the network becoming more anti-fragile, I think I think that's exponential. Some of the other pieces, like the halving cycles and the difficulty adjustments, are more programmatic and like step functions. So I know we're going to talk about this a little bit, but like when you think about companies like Marathon and HUD eight right now, like they're just going to get bigger. Their hash rate, they're they're going to get bigger. The challenge is every four years, the amount of Bitcoin they're going to be able to mine is going to get cut in half, right? And so. There, there are different parts of the Bitcoin stack that do different things. And so I try to understand as many pieces of them. And I think when you put it all together, though, you do get a network overall. It's like a flywheel, right? But overall, what you get is a network that de-risks itself organically over time as more users come on, as more miners come on, as hash rate goes up, as more infrastructure gets built, as more exchanges and fiat on-ramps and off-ramps and payment services are built, the entire network de-risks as it scales. So, uh, so I would agree generally with the idea that as the price goes up, 
unlike an equity, Bitcoin actually gets safer from an investment standpoint. Let's talk about uh, Marathon and uh, HUD-8. Just two miners. Is equity that you own, correct? Those are my two top picks for publicly traded miners today, just because I've spent more time with those management teams. I'm more familiar with their operations. Uh, I could tell you more about them and, and why I think they're going to win. Talk to us about the valuation. So how are, how are you thinking about this? Because there's people ask me all the time, Preston, I want to own equity in addition to owning Bitcoin in this space. I'm having a hard time figuring out how to value it. Maybe start at the highest level, which is, in my view, there's kind of four legs to the Bitcoin ecosystem stool, right? So there's users, right? Which includes people just buy and, and hold Bitcoin, people who use it in Nigeria to, to transact with each other, people who run nodes to confirm their own transactions. So they're important. Obviously, without users, there's no, there's no Bitcoin. There's no need to have it. There are also investors, right? Who are attracted by all the user activity who, who want to invest uh, in the ecosystem. Right? There are also software and infrastructure providers. So I'm thinking of companies like Coinbase and, and BitGo and, and Lightning and Strike and Lightning Labs and Strike and other, other folks that are building you know, really interesting components. But maybe one of the most important but most misunderstood components of, of the stool for, in Bitcoin for me is the Bitcoin mining part of the stack. And so you know, Bitcoin miners serve so many different roles, but obviously at the, at the very front end there, they, they're providing the hash rate that keeps the network secure. Right? So without Bitcoin miners, right, proof of work just doesn't actually work. And so you need them to be there. But they're also, when you think about it, they're the only people in the ecosystem who can create new Bitcoin. Everybody else is interacting with Bitcoin that, that they already owned or that already existed. Bitcoin miners are creating new Bitcoin every day. And so they're like central bankers, in a sense. I, I hate to use that nomenclature just because it's not going to go over well with this community, but in a sense, they're, they're, they're like bankers. And so when you're thinking about a Bitcoin miner, like I like to start with the balance sheet. I think it's a good way as a value investor to make sure you don't lose money. And so let's just start with the high level. So HUD-8 and Marathon are my two favorites, right? But HUD-8 and Marathon are slightly different companies. HUD-8 is Canadian, and Marathon's based primarily in the US. HUD-8 is about a $1.5 billion company. Marathon's about 3.7, let's call it 3.5. So together, they're about $5 billion companies. So when you look at their most recent production ports, you see some really interesting things though, right? So HUD-8 actually mined 362 uh, Bitcoin in the month of August. Marathon mined uh, 460 for the month of August. So you can build that up to kind of like an annual run rate. So the way I think about it right now is approximately that HUD-8 and Marathon should be able to mine about 10,000 Bitcoin over the next 12 months. Like Think about that, 10,000 Bitcoin. That's incredible. What do you think about it? And their current Bitcoin and their balance sheet right now for, for HUD-8, it's about 205 million, right? So it's 4450 BC. For Marathon, it's 6695, so about 6700. So they have about 11, a little over 11,000 collectively. It's a sum total of about $500 million of Bitcoin. But they're actually over the next 12 months, just given the current assumptions we have about about hash rate and the price and whatever, they're, they're probably going to be able to mine 10,000 Bitcoin. And remember, that should continue for the next about two years and eight months until the next halving, two years, seven months, two years, eight months, uh, something like that. And so I think they should be able to, to mine collectively about 28,000 Bitcoin to add to the 11,000 they already have in balance sheet. Remember, both Marathon and HUD-8 have come out publicly and said, our strategy is to huddle Bitcoin. We do not sell Bitcoin. And this is a new thing, by the way. This is part of the falling cost of capital we're seeing across the mining space. Like Four or five years ago, it was so hard to raise equity or debt for a miner. Now, all of a sudden, there are a lot of people active. And some of the biggest mining deals that happened, by the way, this spring were never even announced, right? like $100 million plus equity and debt deals that like were never really even talked about. And so because of that, the, the cost of capital is falling. And so now Marathon and Huddy are able to just 
stack Bitcoin. So they're effectively industrial scale hodlers. And my current forecast is over the next decade, they should be able to, to add about 60. So they'll have about 60,000 Bitcoin collectively, just these two miners, right? Which today have a sum total of a $5 billion market cap, right? So remember those number, 5 billion market cap, about 11,000 BTC on the balance sheet today, probably something like 60,000 BTC within say six years between the end of this halving cycle and the end of the next halving cycle. So 2026, 2027, six years approximately. Let's say we get to 60,000. Now, now humor me for a second and assume that we see a million dollar Bitcoin price. Now you're talking about $60 billion of balance sheet Bitcoin in six years collectively on two companies that today are worth 5 billion. So you've got something like a 12X just on the balance sheet. Now, remember today that these companies are trading at collectively a $5 billion market cap, but they only have 500 million of, of, of BTC. So they're effectively trading at 10X their balance sheet BTC. But I'm talking about their balance sheets growing 12X over the next six years. That's just the balance sheet side. Now think about all the business lines that you can build on top of Bitcoin mining. So hint, hint, the big secret for Bitcoin mining is that base layer Bitcoin mining is just like step one of building a platform play in this space. You're going to obviously run your miners. You're going to run them cheap. You're going to keep your cost of power low. You're going to acquire miners when they're, when they're cheaper. You're going to plug them in. You're going to be smart about keeping them cool, keeping them clean, not overclocking them, but overclocking them maybe just a little bit uh, to get to maximize your, your yield. But at the end of the day, some of this business gets commoditized o- over years. But I do think the best operators will continue to be able to maintain market share. Right now, HUD 8 is about 1% of network hash rate, maybe a little more. Marathon's closer to 2%, but they're forecasting Marathon is, is forecasting explosive growth. They're forecasting 133,000 ant miners, S19s, plugged in in July of next year with something like 13 exahash, right? Something, something crazy like that. And assuming the network hash rate goes back up to kind of over 150 towards 200, I think Marathon's headed to sort of like 5 to 8% market share and HUT's going to probably be able to maintain 1%. So the numbers I just gave you, 60,000 BTC in six years uh, at a million dollar price, which would be $60 billion a balance sheet, that's assuming that they just maintain their current kind of 1% and 2% shares. I actually think the best companies will actually increase their market share over the next five years because what's happening is as the business gets bigger, it's harder and harder for people that don't have scale to negotiate for the lowest power cost, to negotiate with Canon and MicroBT and Bitmain and Bitfury, right? And all these companies that make the, the chips, if you don't have leverage, you don't have scale, you, you're probably going to pay more. And so you're not going to be competitive relative to a marathon or a hut. And so, so that 60,000 could be 80,000, could be 70. I have no idea, but I think 60,000 is a reasonable assumption for the next five years. So, so when you look at it just from that perspective alone, Preston, I think what you see is that like Bitcoin miners are probably a pretty good way to make 20 or 60x uh, your money over the next decade conservatively. And Bitcoin may do better, may do worse, but assuming Bitcoin does go to a million dollar Bitcoin price, you're talking about a kind of a 20x return in Bitcoin and probably at least double that in the best performing Bitcoin miners. And for that reason, I, I tend to think the best idea is to own both. So when you're thinking about owning one miner over the other, you had mentioned that the operational execution is paramount, probably as far as a consideration. First of all, what kind of metric would you look at on the income statement or the balance sheet? To kind of understand whether that operational excellence is there, I'm assuming you're going to say you got to really take a close look at the at the operators and the executives within the organization. But for somebody that maybe doesn't have that access, what would you tell them as a good metrics to to maybe look at? I mean, I think the the, the best way with any investment, not not just Bitcoin miners, is to look at management forecast and then look at actual results over any reasonable period of time, like a year or two, saying. Hey, management said we would have 133,000 machines. Well, guess what? If Marathon has 64,000 machines plugged in, in July, I'm not going to sell the stock necessarily in July of next year, but I will at least re-underwrite it. 
yeah. they have 133,000 machines plugged in, then that's probably a pretty good sign, right? And they have 13 exahash on the, uh, on the network and you could track that, then that's probably a pretty good sign that management's doing what they say they're going to do, right? But, but I actually think you know, operational expertise is important. But at scale, I think capital markets expertise is maybe even more important because fundamentally, these are not, they're not differentiated by their operating metrics so much as they're differentiated by their access to capital right? And their ability to procure machines. Those are the two biggest things. So if you can get a billion dollars of low-cost capital right now, like Preston, if you and I could get a billion dollars, we could spin up an industrial scale miner if we could get somebody at Bitmain to return our phone calls or return our emails. That's actually the biggest problem. You could get a billion dollars right now. It doesn't mean you can get the machines orders done. And it doesn't mean those machines will actually show up. Then once they show up, yes, you have to plug them in. You need to make sure your source of power is is available at a reasonable cost, you know, three cents per kilowatt hour, sort of like that kind of industrial scale metric. Like if you're over that, it's okay as long as you're sustainable, right? Like if you use wind and you use a uh, hydro, like four or five cents, investors seem to be okay with. If you use coal, it better be two cents or two and a half cents because nobody thinks that's going to be sustainable in the long run. And so source source of power matters, right? Like the biggest thing that could actually disrupt these companies is that the government of the municipalities that they operate in comes in one day and says, you know what, we're not allowing coal in Montana anymore. Right, or we're not allowing uh, this other power source in, in this other jurisdiction, right? And, and you know, people who followed Greenage, the support.com SPAC that, that just went public and became a meme stock recently. You know, all the talk was about the Seneca Lake issues, the environmentalists talking about them heating up the lake, and there was a very real risk actually a few months ago that New York would pass legislation that would make it hard to be a Bitcoin miner. So that would have been a material risk to being an investor in that particular company. So I, I try to obviously underwrite the management teams. And a lot of it's following their forecast versus what they do. A lot of it is following their ethos and their philosophy. So HUD actually says in their August production report that they are following their strategy of hodling. I can't make this up. There's a public company that trades on NASDAQ that's telling you that they're hodling Bitcoin. I think that's fantastic because somebody says they're hodling Bitcoin at scale is probably not going to stop hodling Bitcoin tomorrow, next quarter, next week. I have no idea what another miner is going to do if, they're, if they have a tradition of liquidating Bitcoin to buy more machines. That's not what I want out of my miners. I want my miners to keep their cost of capital so low that they can grow their business in sort of a frictionless way and keep stacking Bitcoin at scale. I want them to add that 5,000 or 10,000 of Bitcoin over the next the remaining halving cycle, right? Or over the next 12 months, I want them to add 25 or 30 over the remaining halving cycle, right? Like If they could do that, I'm confident these are winning investments. If they can't do that for some reason, then something else is broken in the model, right? Bitcoin's price didn't do what we thought. Hash rate, did something we didn't expect, et cetera. But assuming some of these baseline assumptions are correct, you will make money if, if management does what they say they're going to do. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. Or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. 
Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. All right, back to the show. I would think that another uh, key consideration, Mike, would be just the the regional part that you're talking about. But if you could find, like, let's say up in Canada, they have dams that are already constructed there. The, the cost of energy is extremely low relative to everybody else. I would think that this is maybe even a bigger advantage uh, or right up there with the operational execution advantage that a company might have because they have strong uh, operators. But I mean, if you're able to get the energy for nothing, or you have some type of government that actually is facilitating this or really getting behind Bitcoin, like in El Salvador is a perfect example. If the government's actually trying to provide cheap energy costs to promote more and more miners to come into their country, this has to be like the golden egg of finding the right company that's situated to, to do that. So uh, how are you looking for some of that kind of stuff? Luckily, I had a lot of direct experience talking with uh, miners in both Western Canada and Eastern Canada. There's some really great sustainable miners in both of those geographies. I don't want to dox any particular companies because they're all private, but they're literally companies that, yeah, you're right. They have essentially free or close to free power. They're in very, very remote areas where they're tapping into rivers in some cases. right? And I think those models are, are incredible. I think those are companies that in a lot of cases, those municipalities, they're actually trying to attract People to those places, right? Whereas, uh, you know, in China, like you know, the problem with China is like if you've ever been to Beijing, like there are just days where like you can't see your neighbor because there was so much smog, right? The last time I went there, it was just a, it was an odd, eerie uh, feeling. I think I was there like six or seven years ago. I was in Beijing, and I was just like, they're just going to have environmental problems here. There's mudslides and there's smog, and the kind of under talked about thing, in my opinion, about what happened in China is just that like Chinese government may not be the nicest people in the world, but they're not idiots. Right. And they recognize that, like, at the scale of a billion plus people, they actually can't afford to allow the environmental degradation to happen at the, at the scale and the speed that it was sort of happening there. And it's just very visible. Like, if you just walk outside in Beijing, you can't make up another reason why that happened. Like, that's just that, that's what happens when you don't take care of the environment. In other geographies, it's less obvious. Right. And so it may be a slower process. Like, 
Kazakhstan may take a lot longer to decide they don't want coal miners there than, than China took to decide that. Canada, especially like the far north and the far uh, eastern part of Canada, seems to me like one of the best geographies because you have so many places where you can mine that are either cheap or basically free and also where the power source is really clean. So I'm, I'm extremely bullish on Canada. I think Canada is going to be one of the best places to look for, for miners. And I expect a whole bunch of other publicly traded miners to come out behind HUD aid and the others that are already out there on the market. So let's shift gears just a little bit. So you're dialed into the way Wall Street thinks. You have contacts there. How are they looking at Bitcoin today? Because I know what it was like back in 2017. It was almost a little bit of a joke for them to kind of look at it. But now it seems like they're taking it way more serious. But what are your thoughts on, on some of that? Obviously, I worked at NYDIG for, for eight months. So I was seeing the kind of institutional business evolving at scale. And it seems to me that the, the conversations have completely shifted, particularly in the last year or so. There's obviously going to be a lot of institutional inertia. There's a lot of committees. There's a lot of fear, right? There's a lot of risk management processes. There's a lot of compliance, particularly in like the wealth management RA space where I've been spending a lot of time recently. But what I've seen happening now is like a lot of the current crop of new investors are, are able to underwrite Coinbase right? as an investment. They're able to underwrite Marathon as an investment because they understand how the traditional exchange business works. right? They understand how NASDAQ works. They understand how the NYSE works and ICE. right? They, they understand how traditional mining works. So they're able to use these analogies from other uh, spaces that they've been successful in and then apply it to Bitcoin and crypto. And what, what ends up happening though, is they end up guiding themselves into underwriting Bitcoin itself. Because you can't own Coinbase for too long before you start to ask, well, okay, what's the real value of Bitcoin? What's the real value of Ethereum? And so I think uh, the fact that there are more publicly traded equities, like this is where people say, why do you own equities? And why do you invest in equities versus just Bitcoin? And it's like, well, I actually think these equities being public is like advertising for Bitcoin. These companies being publicly traded means everybody can own them, whether they understand how to run a, a hardware wallet and use cold storage or not. They can buy Coinbase. And that's what a lot of institutions are doing. Um, as it relates to like specific use cases, insurance companies have been really interesting. And I do credit the NIDIC folks because they were all over this early. They recognize that you know these insurance companies have long-dated fiat uh, liabilities. So like 20 and 30 and 50 year type of things that they want to pay off for policyholders. And in a low interest environment, like what better thing to own than Bitcoin in your general account to make sure you'll be able to uh, have the power to, to pay off those obligations far in the future. So I think that's a really interesting use case. I think eventually Bitcoin lives, and I've been saying this for a long time, it lives inside of insurance companies, right? It lives inside of insurance products, right? So variable universal life policies, universal life policy. Why would I want to own some index funds or whatever in my universal life or variable universal life policy when I can own Bitcoin? Bitcoin's going to go up in value much more than, than equities on average. And so if I wanted to pre-fund an insurance policy, I wanted to put 10,000 a year into my million dollar VUL, even if I was buying an annuity, I'd want Bitcoin to be powering that. For asset managers, I think allocation funds is a really interesting entry point. So, like, I've talked to a few asset managers about putting a Bitcoin allocation into their target date funds. So, these target date funds are like the 2030, 2040, 2050 fund that you see in a 401k plan. You probably haven't had a 401k plan in so long, you're, you're, you're not as familiar with these. But the average American worker, this is what they're seeing. They, they sign up for their Fidelity 401k plan and they get the Fidelity 2050 retirement fund. Well, what if that fund just had Bitcoin in the fund? Then you don't have to make an active decision to allocate. To Bitcoin, it's just there already. You just opt into your 401k, you, you defer 3% pre tax, and it shows up in Bitcoin, right? Or a percentage of Bitcoin based on your age and risk tolerance. So I think that's a really interesting entry point. And then the bank channel, right? The traditional bank channel, 
all the research Nidig and others have done has basically said that most customers would prefer to buy Bitcoin through their bank, believe it or not. So even though all of us in the Bitcoin community want banks to become irrelevant and, and be obsolete tomorrow, the reality is like as an entry point for getting Bitcoin in more people's hands, the bank channel is a good way to do that. You know, Nidig's publicly announced in June, they partnered with FIS. I think that was actually a much bigger deal than most people realize. And I think everybody will have access to Bitcoin through these kind of more institutionalized channels you know, over the next couple of years. How many years out do you think we are with the 401k where people are going to be able to allocate a couple percent to it? It depends, right? There'll be early adopters in the next, probably call it 12 months. And then there'll be kind of almost everybody will be able to access in three years. And then like in five to seven years, everybody will, right? So I still think there's a, there's a timeline. The, the ERISA code and, and just the way 401k plans work, they're, they're highly regulated. There's a lot of eyes on that space, right? And so I, I think you, you have to be thoughtful about how you do it, but there are plenty forward-thinking executives in the retirement channel that understand Bitcoin. I've talked to many of them in the last couple of months. And so they're thinking about talking about underwriting Bitcoin right now internally. And so it just, it just takes time to get it approved. El Salvador, is this uh, big news? Is this noise? Is it a smaller deal than people were making it out to be on Twitter? What are your thoughts on it? You know, I'm conflicted a little bit. Like I think from a geopolitical game theory and kind of domino standpoint, it's an incredibly bullish thing. Like I think it's a great experiment. I think I think uh, we're going to learn a lot from doing it. And I think it will encourage other countries. I think you probably saw today that Ukraine legalized Bitcoin and crypto. Yes. I kind of I kind of chuckle a little bit at that because if it wasn't illegal before and then you legalize it, does it mean as much as if it was illegal before and then you legalize it? Don't answer that because I I don't think there's an answer. But I kind of chuckled a little bit when Ukraine you know says they legalize crypto. But I do think there'll be more, and I think El Salvador doing it. And taking the blows, like the body blows for everybody else, makes it easier for other countries to come along behind them. So, in terms of easing the path, I'm bullish. I mean, El Salvador is a poor country. You know, a lot of the people there are hand to mouth, and, and like you give them thirty dollars in Bitcoin, it's not going to make you know an incredible immediate impact on their lives. And I also just generally don't support people that manage their their countries in a way that I think could potentially be harmful down the line. I have no idea. What Bukele ends up being, right, as a leader, like he may end up being one of the greatest leaders in Latin American history. We may look back in time and say, "Wow, this is like a Simone Bolivar moment for Latin America." We also may look back and say, "Man, what a ill-fated experiment by somebody who ended up becoming a dictator." I have no idea how that plays out. So I want to be cognizant uh, of history and I want to be thoughtful in saying that I'm bullish, I'm hopeful, right? But at the same time, I think it would be foolish to just put the blinders on and assume everything's going to go well. So since the uh, spring, there's been some really hard lessons for people using leverage in this space. What kind of tips can you give people as to whether they should, whether they shouldn't, anything relating to leverage? Well, I would step back a step and just say that Bitcoin is, in my view, the only remaining like large-scale, truly free market in the world. Almost every other market is either directly or indirectly influenced by government actors. Like in the US, for example, on my street, these homes just keep going up and up and up. And it's because they're holding the interest rates down near zero, right? And they're pumping all this liquidity into the economy. And so, you know, when you first look at a Bitcoin chart, you think, what the hell is going on with this asset? Why does it trade like this? And I think the reason why it looks like that is you're comparing the Bitcoin chart to the chart of of a whole bunch of manipulated assets. And so yeah, equities and and bonds and and Real estate in the US tend to just like go up and to the right with very limited volatility. But a lot of that is manipulation. 
And so because of that, because Bitcoin is so volatile, it's allowed to kind of correct 80% and correct 50% very quickly. I generally argue that most people shouldn't be using leverage at all. If you can make 20 or 50 or 100 times your money in a decade, I don't see why you need to use leverage. And so my general advice to my friends and to people who ask me is just like I said earlier, buy the amount of Bitcoin that you're comfortable buying uh, today, whether it's 1% or 5% or 20%, unlevered, spot. If you want to hold in a segregated custodian, I'm not like these hardline Bitcoin toxic maximalists or like I think if you're able to do that successfully, you should consider doing that. But you can also use services like Unchained Capital to do a more collaborative approach where you hold a key, someone else holds a key, they hold a key that way. It also helps for estate planning. Like This is one thing that people don't talk about enough. A lot of people are going to die with Bitcoin, and most people don't have a plan for that. Unchained Capital is one way that you can actually plan uh, for your estate plan, right? because you can make sure the administrator, the trustee has access uh, to the Bitcoin. Leverage to me is a double-edged sword. Like, yes, you can get rich really quickly, but most people I don't think are. I think most people are blowing themselves up. And so I advise people to avoid it. All right. So for the person who listened to this conversation and they're still very skeptical about Bitcoin in general, which there's a lot out there, what would be the thing that you would tell them that for you just makes this a no-brainer? I've successfully orange built, I don't know, several hundred people over the last four years, including serious investors, hedge fund folks, et cetera, right? That like have a long history of investing. And the thing that I feel like honestly resonates the most is to find the Republicans, right? And find the conservatives and basically define Bitcoin as this anti-MMT thing. It's the only way to actually counteract the pure insanity that you're seeing. And not just American monetary policy, but basically global monetary policy at this point. It's everybody, right? Everybody's in a rush to, to print as much money, to borrow as much money, to basically inflate asset prices. And so if you find that distasteful in any, for any reason, whether just because you're a fiscal conservative or because you're a Republican or because you're just anti-Democrats or whatever, I'm an independent voter, right? So like I, I sit on both sides. I, I don't personally care. I will support a politician if they are pro-Bitcoin. Generally agree with Dennis Porter and others who have said that this is the single biggest voting block maybe in human history because it unites so many different people. And so you know, I think Anybody who is sort of supportive of Bitcoin is a friend of mine. And so the way I relate this to uh, people who are negative on it is I just say, hey, would you agree with me that the government's spending too much money? Would you agree with me that the government's borrowing too much money? Do you agree with me that the government's incentivizing too many poor behaviors? Do you agree that too many people made money off of COVID, right? That shouldn't have made money. Those companies should have gone bankrupt, right? A lot of the, the high, high uh, yield debt that got purchased saved companies. Where the people were being irresponsible. They had levered up to six, seven, eight times EBITDA. These are wealthy people, but they knew that they'd be bailed out. And I, and I say to them, Do you want to defund that type of behavior? And they say, Yeah. And I say, Well, guess what? I'm just going to keep telling you this over and over again until you get it. Buying Bitcoin is the one way to do that. I love it. Mike, if people want to learn more about you, I know you're active on Twitter. And like we said at the beginning there, I know you do Twitter spaces, which is very beneficial where people can you know, just ask you questions when you're, when you're in that uh, setting. But uh, give people a handoff where they can learn more about you and anything else that you want to highlight. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm just at Mike Alfred at Twitter. I didn't even use the platform much previously, but three months ago, upon becoming a free agent, uh, I decided for the first time, okay, I'm actually going to use this thing. And really understand. And it's been incredible. I've learned so much from the folks in the community. I've also been able to add value back because I have a unique set of perspectives, having worked deep inside of crypto and having kind of more of a traditional investing background. I'm able to explain some of these concepts 
around Bitcoin to the average person in a way that's different than the way it's usually explained. And so I've really been enjoying acts. So just find me on Twitter at Mike Alfred and you know, I engage with everybody there. Mike, thanks so much for making time and coming on the show. Thank you, Preston. Appreciate it. Hey, so thanks for everybody listening into the show. If you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you're using. We really appreciate that. And if you have time, leave us a review. So thanks for joining us this week and we'll catch you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.